Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome this evening. Um, I'm delighted that uh, enough people have braved the uh, London transport uh, to make it here. Um, my name's Simon Chapman. I'm the director of the Hunterian Museum, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the last in our series of lectures on sex and scandal in the 18th century. Before I introduce our speaker, can I just give you a few bits of housekeeping? Firstly, uh, if the fire alarm should ring, um, which I sincerely hope they won't. Uh, we need to uh, make our exit through the front of the building and gather outside opposite the college, where Hallie will continue her lecture in impromptu <laughs> alfresco style, I expect. Uh, secondly, if you have a mobile phone, if you could turn it off or turn it to silent so it doesn't ring and disturb us during the lecture. Now, this evening's speaker, uh, Hallie Rubenhold, a historian, author, and broadcaster. Hallie completed her, completed her PhD on marriage and child rearing in the 18th century. She's worked at the National Portrait Gallery and has taught and lectured widely on British social history and the history of art. Her first book, The Covent Garden Ladies, was published in 2006 and was filmed as the BBC documentary The Harlot's Handbook. Hallie has also featured in several other documentaries about 18th century London and was the historical consultant for two Channel 4 period dramas, The Harlot's Progress and The City Advice. Can you, can you see a theme emerging <laughs> here in Hallie's work? Um, in her latest book, Hallie has turned to a more upmarket group of characters, although thankfully for us, they're no better behaved than the people she'd been writing about before. Um, tonight's lecture is based on her latest book, Lady Worsley's Whim, which was published at the end of last year and was featured as Radio 4's Book of the Week earlier this year. I presume the one that gets broadcast late at night. No, or early in the morning. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> What a thing to wake up to. How exciting. Um, so, with no further ado, please welcome Hallie Rubenhold to give this evening's lecture. Well, thank you very much for coming. Uh, I realise how difficult it is uh, in the face of the tube strike, and I'm just hoping that the good people of the RMT will let us all get home tonight as well. But transportation was not a problem that faced... Lady Worsley and her lover, George Morris Bissett, on the night of the 19th of November, 1781. A hired post-chase came charging down the London road from the town of Lewis in Sussex. In the carriage, Lady Worsley sat, and Lady Worsley was the wife of Sir Richard Worsley, MP for Newport on the Isle of Wight, Privy Councillor, Governor of the Isle of Wight, and Commander of the South Hampshire Militia. And Captain George Bissett, obviously, was sitting right beside her, warming her hand in his. An officer in the militia that Sir Richard Worsley was the commander of. He was also Sir Richard Worsley's closest friend and, of course, his wife's lover. They were escaping to London, where they would hold themselves up in the Royal Hotel on Pall Mall. And they were not only making a break for freedom together, but more importantly, they were hoping to compel Sir Richard to begin divorce proceedings against them. In the 18th century, a woman could not sue her husband for divorce. Only a husband could instigate legal proceedings, usually on the grounds of adultery. Divorce, like many things in the 18th century, was a luxury for the rich, due obviously to its expense. There were two types of divorce if you were seeking to divorce your spouse. The first was a parliamentary divorce, where a couple could have their marriage dissolved through an act of parliament. 
Um, and this entailed some very unsavory investigations of one's private life by one's peers, which you might want, not want to put yourself through. Although it did enable couples to remarry. The second form of divorce was executed uh, through the Ecclesiastical Court of Doctors' Commons, and this was a separation from bed and board, and it was slightly less desirable, but more common. It, unfortunately, did not provide for remarriage, and the couple remained effectively shackled together for the rest of their lives, and it was a very common way of punishing an adulterous wife. It had a few benefits for the wife herself, in that it enabled her to keep whatever pin money she had in her marriage contract, um, in addition to what was called her widow's jointure, uh, which was uh, basically like a pension that she would receive after her husband died. Well, when uh, Lady Worsley and Captain Bissett ran off together, uh, they had mistakenly believed that Sir Richard Worsley would do the decent thing and opt for a parliamentary divorce. And of course, Sir Richard had no such intention. He was hurt, mortified, his pride was desperately injured. He felt betrayed by his friend and betrayed by his wife. And because of this, Sir Richard opted for a separation of bed and board. Lady Worsley would never be free from him. And he also offered, he, he also opted to sue his friend for criminal conversation. I've just realized that I should probably scroll through this and show you, this is what a post chase looks like. And you can imagine it charging down the, Lewis, uh, the London Road from Lewis. And this is believed to be a picture of Lady Worsley and Bissett, um, as interpreted by um, those uh, creating lampoons, um, holed up in the Royal Hotel. And now we move on. Uh, whoops, that's a bit premature, but I'll come back to that. Um, criminal conversation, we hear a lot about this in the 18th century. What was it? Well. It was a suit which was independent from the suit of divorce. Criminal conversation was effectively a legal action taken by an injured husband against his wife's lover for financial damages. It came out of the law of trespass, and it regarded the law of trespass regarded, in this case, the wife as chattel, and uh, in this case, the chattel or the property of the man had been, uh, had been injured by an interloper, it had been damaged. So he was entitled to receive some sort of compensation for this. And it was common to set damages at very high levels, usually between about 5,000 and 10,000 pounds. The level of damages was set according to the perceived severity of the crime committed and of the wealth of the parties involved. So, for example, a violation of trust between two brothers involving one's wife might merit a particularly large sum because the male honor code had been breached at, at, at the worst possible, to the worst possible degree. Um, another example of this, in 1770, Lord Grosvenor was awarded £10,000 after the Duke of Cumberland, the king's brother, so somebody of very high standing, had had an affair with his wife. So that was £10,000 uh, Lord Grosvenor was awarded. Well, 
Such was the sense of Sir Richard Worsley's injustice and anger that he set damages at £20,000. £20,000, we're looking at approximately £25.4 million today. Sir Richard set out to completely destroy George Bissett. Well, why? In order to understand this, we have to go back to the very beginning of the story, when Sir Richard met Seymour. Seymour Dorothy Worsley was born on the 5th of October, 1757, to Jane Fleming, nay Coleman, and Lieutenant John Fleming, who later became Baron Fleming of Brompton Park. And yes, that is the same Brompton where the Victoria and Albert now stands, almost directly on top of it, as a matter of fact. She was one of five children, um, and uh, only she and her elder sister, unfortunately, her elder sister Jane, who later became the Countess of Harrington, survived to adulthood. She and Jane therefore became the sole benefactresses of their father's considerable estate, which he had inherited rather late in his life. Although they were both rumored to have marriage portions of 70,000 pounds each, the true figure was actually less, a, a mere 52,000 pounds each, or 66.2 million pounds today. Each sister entitled to this, that's, you know, Russian oligarch wealth we're talking about. <laughs> so John Fleming died when Seymour was very young, and Lady Fleming remarried Edwin Lassells, who we can see in this picture, in 1770. And both girls uh, had their lives uprooted, and they were brought to live in the newly constructed Harwood House in Yorkshire. Seymour was very typically the younger sibling. She was described as willful and headstrong. She didn't really enjoy scholarly pursuits, and, uh, and anybody who gets a chance to look at the, the few letters of hers that survive can see that her spelling and grammar is, is quite atrocious, even by uh, the standards of the day. Um, she might be considered what we would say today be as, as a young woman who was rather sporty. She had sporty inclinations. She was a, a very accomplished horsewoman and um, made good use of her stepfather's stables. On the other hand, Jane, her sister, was the paragon of goodness. Um, and she was very pretty and very well behaved. And uh, it was quoted that she was called an ornament to her sex. So she was everything her younger sister wasn't. So it comes as no surprise that when Sir Richard Worsley was looking for a wife, he set his sights first on Jane. In 1772, Sir Richard Worsley was a handsome 21-year-old baronet the owner of the estate of Apple Durkham on the Isle of Wight and Pilewell in Hampshire. He had only recently returned from Grand Tour, and he came to Harwood to ask for the 17-year-old Jane Fleming's hand. But Jane refused him at the outset. She said she found him dull. However, Seymour, even at the age of 14, quite liked him, although she was too young to be considered for marriage. But three years later, Sir Richard and Seymour met again, and this time it was at the York races, and the acquaintance was renewed, and it was reported in the press that the two were inseparable. 
A proposal of marriage was made fairly rapidly and accepted, and by June, Sir Richard had announced to his friend Edward Gibbon that he would be marrying, and the cynical Edward Gibbon said his friend Sir Richard Worsley is marrying for love and £80,000. The wedding took place on the 15th of September, 1775, at the Church of All Saints on the Harwood Estate, and by 1776, Lady Worsley had produced the desired heir, Robert Edwin, and Sir Richard also dutifully threw himself into party politics. There could not have been a more ill-matched pair than Sir Richard and Lady Worsley. Sir Richard is not described by many of his contemporaries in a favorable light at all. As a boy, he was described as pert by Lady Holland. As a young man, Gibbon claimed that he affected wisdom, that he seldom smiled and never laughed, and he desperately tried to seem grown up. He was terribly insecure. He was afraid to express his mind. He, he was what we might call today rather repressed. He was possibly quite damaged because we know that his father, Sir Thomas Worsley, the sixth baronet, was an infamous alcoholic. And at this time in the 18th century, when it was not unknown for gentlemen to drink to excess, um, for Thomas Worsley to be known as an alcoholic in this in these circumstances was, was quite extraordinary. Um, it, he was such an alcoholic, he was suffering from the illnesses uh, related to his, his um, drinking problem, uh, and he died in his early 40s. Sir Richard spent part of his boyhood on the continent traveling because his father was not only an embarrassment to his family, but he was a spendthrift. They had no money. And so in order to avoid the shame of having no money in society, the family decamped to Italy. In later years, Worsley didn't improve as a person. He became even more embittered, withdrawn and arrogant. And Jeremy Bentham notoriously called him haughty, selfish, and mean. Sir Richard was genuinely a stoic. He had a very classical personality, um, or uh, the personality of somebody who uh, relied more on reason and rational thought and was an, a very, very restrained. He had an accountant's personality. He was precise, mathematical, scientific. He was made privy councillor and controller of the king's household. Basically, um, this means he was the king's accountant. He balanced the books. And he was a collector of art. He was passionate about antiquity. He spent several years in Switzerland studying the Greek and Roman philosophers and, uh, and writers. He was also deeply ambitious. He was, as he would call himself, a courtier. He was eager to make his name in politics. He was an MP for Newport. And he, most of all, was absolutely desperate to repair his family's name and to win himself a peerage. He was extremely ambitious. We get a sense of this in the portrait that was painted of him by Joshua Reynolds, who was also a friend of Sir Richard's. And um, we know, obviously, that uh, Reynolds was later to paint this very famous one, but many people don't know about this one, which was the first one that he painted. 
We get a sense of the type of person Sir Richard was from this. It was painted in 1775, and this is very much Sir Richard Worsley's announcement to the world of who he was and who he liked to be seen as. He's shown here very much as a man of property. He's standing uh, in the landscape uh, of, of Appledurkham, his estate on the Isle of Wight. And this is very much the pose of a man of feeling or a poet soldier. And this is in keeping with the Renaissance ideals and the ideals of antiquity. He was both a thinker and a fighter. Obviously, he's chosen to pose in his uniform uh, from the South Hampshire militia. So he's showing the world that this is how he sees himself as a commander but this is distinctly not a military portrait at all. He is a man of feeling in the landscape, and he is not assuming a military pose. This is a very informal pose. His hat is off. He's holding um, one of his gloves in his hand. He's holding a walking stick as well. We can also see on his face a look of sort of elevated disdain, withdrawal, suspicion, perhaps, and uh, Reynolds seemed very much to be able to capture the character of the man that he was. Now, this was painted at about the time of his marriage, and it was traditional at around the, the period of marriage for uh, portraits to be commissioned. And Lady Worsley's was commissioned slightly after this. We know that this was designed as a, a pendant or a matching portrait, although, due to the history... Uh, they never actually hung together. And this was painted in 1779. There was an earlier portrait of Lady Worsley, which was painted at about the time of her marriage, but that has been lost, unfortunately. She sat to Reynolds in 1779, the summer after he saw her at the military encampment at Coxheath with the Amazons. In 1778, the militias had been raised to defend Britain from potential attack from France. And this style of dress was created by the Amazons, the Amazons being the wives of the military commanders at Coxheath, um, such as the Duchess of Devonshire, who was there. And we know that this style of dress was actually innovated in 1778. Um, and the Duchess of Devonshire wanted to have a female version of her husband's uniform to stride around camp in, and all of the other women followed suit with their own versions. And the women, interestingly enough, continued to wear these uniforms, uh, which were versions of their husbands, obviously, um, throughout the war with France. And uh, uh, when France was uh, fighting on the side of the American rebels. Now, um, Reynolds, we know, saw her there and was capturing this spirit, uh, the spirit of this particular era and the patriotism. And Lady Worsley has come to represent very much the figure of the society female warrior between 1778 and 1781. She appears quite brazen and in her hand she's holding a, a riding crop, which a number of people make comment at. This, this is uh, alluding really to her skill as a horsewoman more than anything else. Although the brazenness of what she's wearing is reflective very much of her character. And there is one very interesting anecdote um, of her behavior around this time. There's a very well-documented incident that happened during the Christmas New Year period, 1778-79, <coughs> 
Edwin Lassells and Lady Fleming used to hold an annual New Year's ball, masquerade ball at Harwood. Well, that year, Lady Worsley and the two Miss Kramers, who were the unmarried daughters of Sir John and Lady Coggill, decided they would go through all the rooms and throw the men's breeches out of the window. And one of the guests, uh, a Mr. Wrightson, decided to retaliate by hanging Lady Worsley's caps and items from her bandboxes in the trees. Well, you think that's bad. The rampage that she was about to go on was much worse and continued for three days. Lady Worsley and the two Miss Kramers decided they were rather bored at Harwood and they wanted to go into Leeds to the assembly. But uh, Edwin Lassells would not loan them his, his horses, so she stole cart horses from the stables. And rather than going to Leeds, they went to a tavern en route. They broke into uh, the room where the militia colours were hung upstairs in a private room. And finding the militia colours, decided it would be rather fun to get hot pokers and stick them through the militia banners. And in doing this set the militia banners alight. Well, this was problematic because they didn't have any water to put the fire out with. So what did three really well-bred women do in such a case? Well, naturally, according to one observer, they fairly pissed it out. Um, so, but if you think that's worse, if you think that's bad, there was even worse to come because after they'd done that, they decided it would be rather fun to throw the contents of the chamber pots out of the top floor windows onto the people down below. And they did that, and then they decided to cover the people who had chamber pot contents all over them with ash from the fires. And uh, once they, they found that that was rather boring um, and they were completely up to their eyeballs and drink, they got on their cart horses and went to the local um, Cannon Hall, which was the home of Walter Spencer Stanhope, and decided to rip apart his library. And Lady Worsley even decided eh, it was worth her while to steal a pocketbook of banknotes as well. This is shocking behavior. It would be considered shocking behavior today. Um, and it raises issues of Lady Worsley's mental state. And having discussed this with a, a number of people uh, who, who are um, psychiatrists, psychologists, who have some familiar with manic depression, they said that a lot of this behavior is reflective of somebody who may be suffering from a bipolar illness. I would not be surprised. It was something that, when you're writing nonfiction, it's uh, very hard. You walk a very thin line between what you're going to put in your book and what you're speculating on. But this is something that I felt very strongly about, yet without the evidence, I couldn't write into the book. So, um, but I do feel that she may not have been mentally stable for most of her life. Certainly during this period, um, relations between Sir Richard and Lady Worsley were very strained. And we would later hear more about this during the criminal conversation trial. Things remained rather strained until about the autumn of 1780, when George Bissett entered the Worsley's lives. Very little, known is, uh, very little is known about Morris George Bissett, who liked to be called just George Bissett, he was the son of Dr. Alexander Bissett, who was the Archdeacon of Connor in Ireland. 
He came from a very scholarly family. He was the eldest son of a large brood of children. He went to Westminster School and Christ Church, Oxford. He was raised to be a landowner, and he had inherited Knighton Gorges, which was the estate that bordered Appledurkham on the Isle of Wight. He was 23 when he met Sir Richard and Lady Worsley, the same age as Lady Worsley, coincidentally, and he had just returned from his grand tour. And this was about the time of the general election of 1780, which is what drew him into Worsley's orbit. We do not know what the precise nature of the relationship was between the men. In the court depositions, there are some interesting phrases that come out. Um, they were said to have enjoyed a friendship on the strictest footing of intimacy. They became very close and fast, immediate friends. Was there a homosexual element? I don't know. I think it is probable that there possibly was. Worsley gave him a captaincy in the South Hampshire militia, um, which was very rare. Usually you bought these things. There was some sort of exchange of favor going on here. His appearance in the Worsley's live, live seems to have also reinvigorated Sir Richard's interest in Lady Worsley. Lady Worsley was having an affair with Bissett, and then eventually became pregnant with his child, who was called Jane Seymour, and she was born in August 1781. Sir Richard was very much aware of this relationship and encouraged it. As a matter of fact, during their second encampment at Coxheath in the summer of 81, the three lived together in a house, a rented house at Maidstone. And this was very suspicious because the house was staffed entirely by local people. There was nobody present from their regular staff. Um, and this was very unusual at the time. And when they moved on, when the family moved on, all of the staff were dismissed. So he was very keen, obviously, to hide something. Now, menage a trois were not entirely unheard of among uh, the 18th century landed classes, but obviously such relationships had to be managed with extreme discretion, especially if there was a homosexual element involved. And we know there were a number of, of fairly high-profile menage a trois at this time, including that of uh, the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire and Bess Foster, and also Sir William Hamilton, Lady Hamilton, and Lord Nelson. Um, Sir William Hamilton being later a very good friend of Sir Richard and also uh, shared a lot of the same interests in uh, the antique as well. Obviously, um, Sir Richard was so outraged at Bissett and he was so outraged at him because he had breached this trust, this discretion that was all important was, was completely kicked over uh, when Bissett eloped with Lady Worsley. Bissett, interestingly enough, is much more the object of Worsley's ire than his wife because he broke the masculine honor code, which was so important, the honor between gentlemen. Of course, Lady Worsley shamed her husband by her behavior, which was bad, as Sir Richard was so proud, but he felt this combined insult warranted the 20,000 pound price tag. 
Worsley's honor had been damaged and the Crim Con trial in the late 18th century had by now come to take the place of the duel where matters of honor were concerned. The courtroom became the new field of honor where a foe could be vanquished publicly. So the trial against George Bissett for criminal conversation with Sir Richard Worsley's wife was set for the 21st of February, 1782. It was to be heard at the court of the King's Bench in Westminster Hall. Crim con trials at this time were very popular and people liked to attend them. The press packed into the gallery, as did the public. It was a full house that day for this one. This trial had been touted as you know, an, an upcoming event and people were very curious. They'd been following it in the gossip sheets. Uh, the elopement had been widely covered. And Sir Richard felt, in the face of all of this, that he had a fairly straight case of adultery to present. His wife had run off with Bissett, that much was clear. They had been witnessed in bed together at the Royal Hotel in Pall Mall. The evidence had been gathered, and the case was managed by James Farrer, a Farrer and Co, who specialises in this work. And, and Farrer and Co's offices are just literally on the other side of Lincoln's Inn Square. The best barristers had been hired to prosecute this, including James Wallace, who was the Attorney General, and he led a team of four barristers. Worsley had hired only the best. He was used to splashing his money out and getting the best, and he felt assured of a win, because if you had enough money, you could buy justice in the 18th century, and uh, I don't think things have changed that much these days. Um, Bissett, on the other hand, seemed very outgunned. He had only three counsel. He had no dispute to make for the case of adultery. However, what Bissett did have was an incredibly unorthodox strategy which he hoped his lawyer which he hoped would be able to save him. The challenge would be over Lady Worsley's actual worth as an object. It would be argued that she wasn't worth £20,000 damages because as chattels she was ruined long before Bissett ran off with her. And in order to prove this, Lady Worsley had to agree to the public destruction of her character. And this had never ever been done and it was utterly outrageous. She felt, or she was convinced to feel, that she had nothing left to lose. As an adulteress, her character was already ruined how could she fall any further than this? Well, legalities barred either Sir Richard, Bissett, or Lady Worsley from appearing as witnesses in their own trials. So others had to be called to give evidence on their behalf. Bissett had not been the first of Lady Worsley's lovers, but one of many. And she called upon a number of them to attest to this and to how Sir Richard approved of and encouraged all of her liaisons. How many lovers Lady Worsley had has often been open question. Various sources have counted 34, 28, according to the Morning Post, which was the uh, scandal sheet of the time. Horace Walpole uh, writes in a letter that he had heard she had 27. He was probably just regurgitating what he had read in the Morning Post and getting his figure slightly wrong. 15 were cited in a Grub Street pamphlet. 
11 in the notorious Gilray cartoon that we see, which is a peep into Lady Worsley's seraglio. So you see there are a variety of, 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 of different possibilities here. But there is no evidence that she had this many lovers. Or perhaps she even had more. It's impossible to know how many affairs she actually had. Mostly, this was all gossip, and men came forward around the time of, of the trial, claiming in jest they had enjoyed her as a type of act of bravado. However, according to um, the, the, the practices of the time, real lovers would have slightly been more hesitant to do this because there was the honor code to, con uh, to consider, there, were, there was obviously the, the possibility of being charged with criminal conversation uh, as well. Now, I have been able to positively identify five lovers, aside from Bissett, who we know she had relations with. The first of whom was Charles Wyndham, who was the brother of the Earl of Egremont. Edward Rushworth, who was another officer in the South Hampshire militia. The Marquess of Chumley, who was a noted rake. Viscount Deerhurst, and the Marquess of Graham. This is still a considerable amount in the span of roughly three years before she met Bissett, in the time she had been married to Worsley. And of those five, three gave evidence in Bissett's trial. Viscount Deerhurst uh, played an especially instrumental role as he was a friend of Bissett's uh, and also a former love, lover of Lady Worsley's and a former friend of Sir Richard's. And um, there is a picture of him. This is in his old age, and he's wearing a patch over his eye. He, had a, he was in a terrible hunting accident, so this is later in life, but he was thought to be rather attractive as a young man. Now, Deerhurst had arranged the logistics of the couple's elopement and also, Sir Richard had encouraged Deerhurst, while a guest at Appledurkham, to, quote, try his chance with his wife. The jury heard that he had been discovered creeping out of her bedroom at four o'clock in the morning one night when he accidentally stumbled across Sir Richard Worsley standing in the adjoining bedroom, in the adjoining dressing room, rather. Now, this was rather embarrassing um, because, first of all, what is the husband doing out of bed at 4 a.m. standing right next to his wife's uh, bedroom door? And, um, and, and Deerhurst, uh, uh, how came you here, was what Sir Richard Worsley said, um, both parties feeling uh, rather chagrined by the whole thing. It turns out Sir Richard had been watching the couple and uh, this gave the jury, the public gallery, and the press proof all the proof they needed, really, that he was a voyeur. The jury also heard how Lady Worsley had an affair with the Honourable Charles Wyndham in 1778. Wyndham, like, the most, like most of Lady Worsley's lovers, was also a notorious rake, but Lady Worsley was the first of his conquests. And their affair ended when Wyndham and his regiment were shipped out to fight in the American War of Independence. Wyndham testified that Lady Worsley had been so in love with him at the time that she gave him her wedding ring as a memento of their relationship. Lady, Wors Lady Worsley's other great love before Bissett had been the Marquess of Graham, and this was in early 1780. And Graham, we know, gave her gonorrhea, and her doctor, Dr. Osborne, was called 
to stand and testify to this. And it's very interesting because we know that Dr. Osborne, in the traditions of that time, didn't actually um, didn't actually examine her. He uh, he was told by a servant, her lady's maid, what was wrong with her. He didn't actually look at her and then um, wrote out the the prescription that was required. But this still looked very bad because Sir Richard hadn't called Dr. Osborne. Um, Lady Worsley had. And Sir Richard hadn't contracted the gonorrhea either, which led to the obvious conclusion, as one hack wrote, that family duty was being performed by substitutes. However, the most damning piece of evidence did not come from one of Lady Worsley's aristocratic lovers, but rather from a servant in the cold baths at Maidstone. Sir Richard George Bissett and Lady Worsley had been relatively discreet about their arrangement until they let their guards slip in September 1781. They went down to the Maidstone cold baths or plunge pools to bathe. And the story goes that there were two entrances, a male entrance and a female entrance. And um, Lady Worsley obviously went into the female entrance and, and Sir Richard and Bissett went and had their bath in the male entrance, through the male entrance. And then they finished and they came back around and were waiting for Lady Worsley outside of the door uh, to the female side and getting rather impatient for her. Um, uh, Sir Richard decided that it would be a, a laugh to let Bissett have a look at the naked body of his wife as she was bathing. And um, Lady Worsley heard a rap at the door and um, her husband say, Seymour, Seymour, Bissett is going to get up and look at you. And then next thing she knew, uh, Bissett's face appeared in the little window above the doorway as Sir Richard was holding him in place for five minutes. And um, Lady Worsley exposed herself to her lover and teased him. But she didn't realise, well, they hadn't really thought about the fact that um, Mary Marriott, the bathing woman, had watched the entire incident unfold. You see, the rich were particularly immune to uh, servants being present. They were like a, a sort of silent army, and they often forgot themselves. And this was a, a case of that. And so um, they all came out laughing and having a, a good time, and it wasn't that funny, and... Um, it turned out it wasn't so funny because this was the piece of evidence which destroyed Sir Richard Worsley's case for the criminal conversation. Worsley, the jury decided, had goaded another man with the flesh of his wife and there was nothing more reprehensible than this. He had encouraged Bissett's lust for her. The jury deliberated over this for an hour, and normally at this time, criminal conversation trials were decided simply by the jury, not even leaving the jury box, just looking at each other and nodding. Um, so they actually had to deliberate over this, and they left the room, and, uh, and it went on for an hour, which was almost unheard of. Ultimately, they ruled that yes, adultery had taken place, so Richard Worsley should, in, in theory, win the suit. However, he had contributed to his own ruin and his wife was valueless. So they awarded him a sum designed to embarrass him, one shilling, which was, at the time, the cost of a pound of soap or a roast beef dinner.
Although Lady Worsley had sacrificed her character, remarkably, it was Sir Richard who fared the worst out of all of this. This is very unusual because usually it is the woman who um, doesn't recover. The press destroyed him for his own folly. They called him not only a cuckold, but they accused him of setting all of this up to entrap Bissett and to defraud the legal system. They called him a deviant, a pervert, an impotent, a homosexual. There were no worse epithets you could throw at a man in the 18th century than being called a homosexual or an impotent. The story made headline news. It was covered in all the papers for weeks. The transcripts of the criminal conversation trial sold out. It went into eight editions, and there were queues outside of the booksellers' shops to get it. Grub Street published a variety of exposés and poems. There was a whole industry based on Worsley's and Worsley lampoons as well, as we can see. It was the lampoons that really destroyed Sir Richard. The first depicting the verdict and the shame of it, which was the shilling, as you've seen. But most was revolved around this, the events at the Maidstone Bath. These peeping scenes, as they were called, became fixed in the public's imagination. This one, the Maidstone Whim, was very famous. But then perhaps the most famous is the one that Gilray did. Sir Richard Worston Sly exposing his wife's bottom. Oh, fie. And you can see um, the, the, the terrible moment right there. Lady Worsley, in the aftermath of all of this, revealed in a pamphlet which she had commissioned that Sir Richard was indeed an impotent and he was a voyeur, that she grew to find him physically repulsive. She had fallen out of love with him and she soon came to loathe him. And very interestingly, Sir Richard hit back in, in, a, in a type of pamphlet war um, by not defending his masculinity. Uh, which was quite unusual, but he claimed instead that, well, Seymour's sexual appetite was unnatural in a woman, but his anger was geared more specifically at the men like Deerhurst and Wyndham who broke the honor code and discredited him publicly. Sir Richard was so shamed by his loss, by these revelations, that he felt that he had to flee the country, which he did in 1783. He wanted to disappear and to be forgotten, so he spent the next five years abroad in an epic journey. He traveled to Spain and Portugal, where virtually nobody was going at this time. Um, he went to France and Italy, and then in 1785, he set off on a massive excursion through the Ottoman Empire, through Greece, Egypt, Turkey, and then back through Russia and Eastern Europe. He quite literally walked off of the face of the earth as far as the 18th century was concerned, because nobody was going to these far-flung places. This wasn't the place, these weren't the sort of places where your average grand tourist went. His desire was actually to resurrect his name by becoming the premier expert on Greek antiquities and to amass an impressive collection of marbles which would help him reinvent himself. While Sir Richard was desperate to salvage his reputation, remarkably, again, Lady Worsley demonstrated to the world that she couldn't give a fig about hers. 
After the trial, she continued to court publicity. She, she actually loved being in the public eye in a very shameless, almost modern, kind of Jade Goody sort of way. She was drunk in public, which was shocking for women. She held a victor's ball where she invited all of her beau to party with her after her husband lost his suit. She appeared unmasked at masquerades. She dressed in men's riding clothes, in breeches and boots, and made exhibitions of her daredevil riding for the Prince of Wales. And she openly boasted of her second pregnancy by Bissett. It was very, very, very unusual. As women usually disappeared after a scandal, and the men were usually absolved, and this wasn't the case at all. It was just the opposite. Lady Worsley had also learned that the way to continue to destroy her husband was to blacken her own name because it reflected poorly on him. The Worsley situation had indeed become so acrimonious that a satisfactory settlement could not be reached with regard to their separation, and this dragged on until 1788. Lady Worsley was granted the continued uh, allowance of her pin money, which was £400 a year, although for a lady of her standing, this was viewed as um, not really enough to live off of, and she managed to run through it. She had no ability to look after her own money. Um, women didn't look after their money, and so when she was faced with this, she, she simply couldn't live off of £400 a year. But Sir Richard wasn't also paying it regularly either. She lived in a state of genteel poverty, especially after Bissett left her at the end of 1782. Sir Richard also ensured that she leave the country as a stipulation in his signing the separation agreement. Now, this was unlawful, but Lady Worsley signed it anyway. She had not realized, of course, that uh, she had agreed to an exile in France for four years. Now it's 1788. What do you think is going to happen? This brought us right to the eve of the French Revolution, and she was trapped in Paris. And there is evidence to suggest that she spent time in the calm prison during the Reign of Terror as well. She was unable to return until 1797, by which time her only surviving legitimate child, Robert Edwin, had died. Lady Worsley had four children that we know of, only one legitimate child, um, uh, out of all four of them, and out of the four, only one outlived her. According to the stipulations of her marriage contract, Lady Worsley could only hope to claim the fortune that she had brought to Sir Richard upon her marriage if she outlived him. And so it became a race to do so after the separation. There is, however, a happy ending for Seymour, but not necessarily such a happy one for Sir Richard. He spent the rest of his life trying to resurrect his reputation. He became the minister resident to Venice on the eve of Napoleon's invasion. There is a remarkable letter from him in the Isle of Wight archives documenting how he watched Venice fall to uh, Napoleon. He was able to escape and, um, and packed all of the treasures he had amassed in, uh, into a ship which uh, he sent out into the Mediterranean. And he had uh, amassed a truly extraordinary collection of paintings and, and uh, Greek marbles over the years, which he called his Museum Worsleyanum, the Greek marbles at least, 
because the rest of his treasures, well, a large um, a number of them, uh, the, the boatload of Titians, Leonardo's, Raphael's, Caravaggio's, and Veronese's, were all confiscated by Napoleon and actually were brought to the Louvre. Um, we know that he stored his Greek antiquities uh, at Appledurkham. Uh, he just basically used Appledurkham as a storehouse for them. And we can see some of his intaglios here and his cameos. Um, and unfortunately, it's quite sad, his Greek antiquities, he had the first real substantial collection of Greek antiquities in this country, but they were almost entirely forgotten about because shortly after his death, there was another notorious cuckold, Lord Elgin, who began to exhibit his Greek treasures. Only two years after Worsley's death, and everyone forgot about the Greek treasures at Abelgadurkum. And so Worsley died encumbered with debt in 1805, having left no tangible legacy, completely a ruined man. Lady Worsley, on the other hand, did manage to outlive her husband and was handed back her 52,000 pounds, or what remained of it, and by then she was living at Brompton House, which was the house she was legally entitled to own but could not in her own name. She was also living with her lover, Jean-Louis Hummel, a Swiss musician and totally unsuitable. He was 21 years her junior. When she heard of her husband's death, she and Hummel made arrangements to marry as soon as possible. Hardly a month had passed since Worsley had been laid into his tomb. Lady Worsley, by license, shed her, quote, detested name of Worsley and assumed her maiden name of Fleming, as did her husband, who changed his name to John Lewis Fleming. They spent the final years of her life together in a villa outside Paris in Passy, where she died in 1818. She was nearly 61, and she's buried in Père Lachaise Cemetery next to John Lewis Fleming, who later remarried. There is one final surprise. Lady Worsley had lost all of her children but one, Charlotte Dorothy Hammond, née Cochard. She had been deposited near Spa in Belgium after her, the, after her birth, um, and she was given to a family who raised her secretly from 1785 onward. She came back in 1807 seeking an inheritance, but didn't get this because she wasn't legitimate. However, out of the love she bears for her daughter, as it says in the documentation, Lady Worsley settled 1,000 pounds on her and 3,000 pounds on any children who would be Seymour's grandchildren, and there were grandchildren. So if any of you know any of the descendants of Lady Worsley, please tell me because I'd love to find them. And thank you very much. Well, thank you very much indeed, Holly, for a wonderful lecture. Um, I understand people have to uh, dash off and, uh, and catch what we hope will be tubes and buses to get home, but Hallie's agreed to take a few questions. So if you have any questions uh, uh, for Hallie, please raise your hand. Yes. Did anything interesting happen to Bissett later? Well, it's it's really it's it's quite interesting. He's such a shadowy character. He just completely withdraws 
uh, from society. Um, he's right in the center of this scandal, and then he disappears. And we know that he goes off to the continent again. This is what you do when you want to repair your reputation. You disappear and to put his, his finances in order. And then he just he, he marries um, uh, a woman called Harriet, and now I've forgotten her surname, unfortunately. And they had uh, uh, they had two girls, and they lived for a while on the Isle of Wight. Um, and he was a good friend with John Wilkes, who also lived on the Isle of Wight. And that's how we know what he was up to, because Wilkes mentions him in his memoirs. Um, but he led a very quiet life, and then eventually retired to um, to Scotland to his ancestral estate. But I suspect, obviously, this has something to do with his family because at about the same time that the scandal broke, um, one of his brothers was, I think, had just become or was applying to become um, somebody quite high up in the church. And so it might not have looked very good on the family. You know, he came from a a quite religious family. Um, But it would be very interesting to know. Again, I I have dug and dug, and people have been meticulous in their destruction of the letters from these three people because obviously it was such a shame um on on the families that the letters were just thrown into the fire most of them so it was really with a fine tooth comb that i had to find what i did i hope that answers your question No, it was very unusual, um, and it is Seymour is in reference to her mother's grandfather, who was the Duke of Somerset, and Seymour was the family <laughs> name. And I think they were hoping there was there was one an elder brother who was born, and they were probably hoping she would be a boy. They, it was traditional to pass on the family name, and the boy didn't appear, and, and um, her father, Sir John Fleming, was actually quite old. He was in his 50s in the 18th century. That was quite old for a man. Um, and uh, they probably thought, well, we better get on with uh, you know, giving her the family name we want to pass on with, because we don't know how many more kids there are going to be. So that's what happened. Yes? There's, there's a stereotype, isn't there, of the, of the sort of dissolute aristocrat mm. as opposed to the respectable middle class. And I wondered if her behaviour was completely exceptional. But, I mean, you, you, you mentioned other cases. And so how mm. do you compare with the, with the, with the, with the more typical behaviour of the aristocracy? Well, I mean, it's you know, it's interesting because the more research I do into the 18th century and to how people lived, the more I realise there is no almost no typical anything. Um, there were ideals and the degree to which people adhered to them. Um, this is one of the things I find fascinating and perplexing about the 18th century is for every rule, there seems to be something that breaks it. Um, and... Um, it was much more common in France and much more acceptable in France for women to have numerous liaisons. Um, it was not so much in Britain or discretion was the key and I cannot underline that enough. Absolutely important that whatever you do, you pull a curtain of discretion across it. Any more? <laughs> Any more tales of bad behaviour when you drawn out? <laughs> well, before we thank Callie again, let me just say that um, uh, we look forward to welcoming you back in the autumn. We have a, 
an exciting events programme planned. We have an exhibition, sci-fi surgery medical robots taking place in the Hunterian Museum, and an events programme including some film screens to go along with that. We also have an artist-led project, Narrative Remains, which examines some of the poignant stories behind John Hunter's pathological specimens, telling the stories of patients from the 18th century, and again, there'll be events linked into that. For this evening, I'd like to thank Jane, Haley, and Maria, who have done all the hard work in setting up these lectures and sorting out the ticketing and making it happen, and also Louise in our library, who's been responsible for the displays which have preceded each lecture. I hope very much we'll see you back in the autumn. I'd like to end just by thanking again Hallie Rubenhall. Thank you.